Our text this morning is uh, Deuteronomy 6 as we continue, as we've reached a, a, a kind of a, a critical point, junction in Deuteronomy, as we covered Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 6 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider the question, just how great of a Savior do you need? Um, you know, Donnie Abbott, a dear sweet brother in Christ, he, he would tell the story. He said uh, the men have a habit of, of drawing a line on the wall of righteousness. You know, we all walk up to the wall and we draw a line of, of, of this is what righteousness is. And that, that line is just a little bit out of our reach, you know, just right there at it. And that, that's where that's what we look at. And that's where righteousness stands. And, 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 and if you can if you can reach that line, you're righteous. And if you can't, well, then you're, you're, you're uh, a sinner. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. We we, we have this um, picture uh, of righteousness, and um, you know because of that, we just need just a little bit of help getting there. We just need just a little bit of help. And the problem is, our line is so far so low. You know, when we consider what it means that that Christ lived a sinless life, do we do we mean by that? He just didn't break any rules. That when we hear the word sinless, we think well, he, he just he just didn't didn't break it, did anything wrong. Is that it? Is that our understanding of righteousness? Um, he kept the rules, or is there something more? You know, when we look this morning, this passage in Deuteronomy, I hope at the end of this that we are so overwhelmed by what Christ did. That we are so um, moved by, by the requirements of this of this passage that we have no choice but to throw ourselves before him in his mercy and worship a God who could do this. That we, we would just so be so moved that we know a God who could do this and has done this for us. So as we read this this morning um, and consider just what this means, may we be moved and changed by the power of his word. Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 6, very, very, it's very pivotal passage. In Deuteronomy, the Shema, or Shema, as it's pronounced. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, I'm sorry, as the Lord, as the, Lord the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know, it's important that as you're reading through a book, particularly one like Deuteronomy, to, to stop every once in a while and, and look at the structure of the book and, and, and look and make sure you keep it in context. As you know, these, these are written as, as a unit, as all together. And, 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 our, and because of the nature of our study, of breaking it up week by week, we have, it's so easy to become focused on these segments 
and not step back and put it back in the context uh, of what Moses is trying to, to say. You know, this week as we were studying through Isaiah, Jack made a comment that, that kind of fit into that. He said, you know, that's probably one of the biggest problems we have in reading and understanding the, uh, the Old Testament is the, the context. You know, we don't have that historical context. We don't, we don't know these parts. We don't have that, that, that keeping the, as reading through Isaiah, we lose what else is happening in around the people of Israel. And because of that, we lose so much of the book. And we also lose the theological context. We lose what the purpose and what the focus is. And, and, and that's so easy, particularly in something like this book of Deuteronomy. And as we consider this part, as we get to this section of Deuteronomy from chapter 6, basically through chapter 26, there's this, there's this structure here that for, for centuries has been debated in, in Deuteronomy. Just what is this, what, what is it centered around? How, how should we break this up? And one of the more recent ones that, I, that that really appealed to me is is looking at this at this section and, and seeing this as this exposition of those ten words. You know, in Deuteronomy five, we had the ten words, the Decalogue, the the ten commandments, as you will. And 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 so and so men have as they've studied this and looked at this and say, you know, all this is one unit. All this book is has been put together for a purpose. And taking this and saying. You know, really, when you when you break it down, you can almost you, you can see not almost you can see these these ten words throughout this, and this first section, this Deuteronomy six actually six to eleven, is basically the first commandment, that first word, and and, and so this this is the, the the context of this whole passage, as we talked about, and as we just as a quick reminder. That first commandment that we read back in Deuteronomy 5, and turn back, we started it, as we, as we divided up those commandments, we started this in verse 6. So the first word, or the first commandment, starts in verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We said that, as, as you remember, it's very important to recognize that this first word begins with grace. It's not a, it doesn't start with a command, it begins with grace. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness or anything that is in heaven or above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And we, so we said you know, that this first commandment, this first word, was, was centered around the image of God. And, and the point was, you will not make any other image why? Because God said, I'm going to make my own image. I'm going to make the image of me. You're not going to do this. As we read through chapters 4 and 5, God said, I will make my image. You cannot make the image of me. I'm going to make my own. First and foremost in the Son, and then later on in, in those that he, he works on the hearts. He said, so I'm making my image. So this commandment, you will not make any image for me, for I will make my own. This commandment. And then you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the first on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me, 
and keep my commandments. In this section of chapter 6, we find this commandment. As we, as we take this, this verse commandment, what does this look like? What does this mean? How, how, do, how do we apply this, this first commandment in this? And how is Moses going to exposit this passage? We start off with this Shema or Shema. This command to hear. Hear, O Israel. And as I mentioned last week, you know, practicing Jews often begin in verse 4 and, and skip over or ignore verse 3. But the Shema is considered the most important prayer the Jewish people practice. It is to be recited every day and generally twice a day that was morning to evening prayers. As one rabbi wrote, it is the quintessential decoration of faith in the Jewish religion. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel. But more than just hear, it means hear and take action. In, in the Hebrew thought, to hear is to obey and to act. And to obey is to hear. There's no separation between hearing and obeying. Their understanding was, if you hear God, you will obey Him. They go together. You can't separate the two. If you hear God, you will obey. The idea that you could hear God, you could hear the voice of God and not respond was anathema to them. That God spoke and you didn't? Move. So this word, hear and obey, hear and take action, hear and apply this. So verse 3, hear, therefore, Israel, Shema, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. And we're talking about these commandments, these, these, these ten words. But hear them and be careful to do them that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear and take action. If we do this, it will go well with us. We will multiply greatly. The same word for multiply we find in Genesis 1, the commandment given to God's creation, man. In Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the earth, and of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This, this, as we said, this is that that re-entering Eden, that re-entering that wonderful promise, that re-entering this this creation. Hear and obey. Do this. Keep these commandments. Let these commandments have an effect on you. That you, that you it will go well with you. And you will back to that original command, be fruitful and multiply. God said, I've created all this, and that includes you. Now, be fruitful and multiply. Everything that I have done, everything that I've created, created and made, now, be fruitful and multiply in this. We do not and cannot stay stagnant. Or just maintaining. We are multiplying something. Because it's interesting, you also find that exact same verb 
And a little later on in Genesis 3, because of Eve's sin, God says, In the curse upon Eve, because of man's sin, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and grief. Genesis 3.16 You will multiply something. Something is going to multiply. Something is going to grow. You will either be fruitful and multiply in the Lord, or you are going to be fruitful and multiply in sorrow. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's, there's always, this is it. Here is, or take action. It'll go well with you. And the promise to re-enter the, the land, that, that land of promise, and you will be fruitful and multiply there. In our walk, something is going to grow. We cannot, we cannot stay the same. We can't get to that place and say, all right, this is where I want to be. I'm just so content here. It just doesn't work. Shema, hear and take action. Obey and it'll go well with you. And you'll be brought to the land flowing with milk and honey, that place of promise. You know, last week we talked a little bit about what does it mean that land flowing with milk and honey? You know, it's interesting that Moses used the word for land more than 50 times in, in, in Deuteronomy so far. I mean, he, he loves, he, he used it so much. And more than half the time, he's talking about the promised land. But this is the first time he calls it the land flowing with milk and honey in Deuteronomy. Up to this time, it's always been. The land, the land, the land. Now he, he adds that poetic language, the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, and, and it, it's, it's, as we said last week, does it really flow with milk and honey? I mean, was there, any, was there a place you could take a bucket out and dip up? Well, no, of course not. It was just poetic language. It was just symbolic language. But symbolic of what? I, I agree it was symbolic language. But as we said last week, it's symbolic of something much more than just fertile land. You know, only after we've clearly seen Christ revealed in those ten words, those ten commandments, and only after we've seen Christ revealed Standing beside Moses, not in front of, I'm sorry, with Moses standing beside God, picturing Christ instead of in front of God. Now the language has shifted. The conversation has shifted from occupying a land to a land flowing with milk and honey. We know that that land does not actually flow with milk and honey. But we know what did flow. Not with milk and honey, but something much more life-giving than, than milk and much sweeter than honey. And that was the, the water and the blood from our Savior. It did flow. And that's the promise. It was never about a land. It was never a picture of a land. It was something so much sweeter. So keep these commandments. Do these things that it will go well with you. So we'll, we will have that promise 
re-enter that promise and have the something sweeter than land and more life-giving. That is our Savior. This is the promise we're to live in if we shema, hear, and obey and take action. In verse 4, shema, hear, O Israel, hear and take action. Take at the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm sure that that you have read or are now reading the multiple possible translations to this. In most Bibles, they give you that list. Literally, in Israel it says, Yahweh, or of course they would say Adonai, Elohim are one. It says, I'm sorry, literally it says, Israel, Yahweh, Elohim are one. So possible renderings include, the Lord our God is one Lord, the Lord, the Lord our God is, I'm sorry, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And the people say these are, are possible uh, renderings for this, and, and they are in, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew because of, the, of just the structure. Any of these could, could be a possible translation. Um, but I think I'll, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. Uh, he wrote, when Jesus spoke of this in, in Mark 12, 29-30, when the scribe asked him about the, com- the greatest commandment, and the Greek is much less ambiguous, it, the, the, the best translation for the Greek is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so this, this is where we're going to go with the translation I'm going to use for this. That the, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, He is, and that, that's an incredible common in itself, that Yahweh is our God. Our God, that personal, not God, Yahweh is God, not Yahweh is a God, it's our God. And He is one. He is unique. There's none like Him. He is one. He is different from all other gods. He's different from all other polytheistic religions with multiple gods. And our God is unique, different from all monotheistic religions. We can't say, well, we're like the Jews. We, we, we believe in one God and they believe in one God. Well, we do, but our God is unique. He is absolutely unique in this. Because while their God, the Jews and the Muslims and others, they have a monotheistic religion, but they don't have the Trinity. And the Trinity is more than just a good idea of a doctrine. It is essential to our faith. Our God is unique. There is none like Him. This is, and He said, for the for the Jews, they said, this you need to say this every single day, every day. You, you this is how you start your day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. He's ours. He belongs to us. It's personal. And he's absolutely unique. There is none like him. Zechariah 14.9, sorry. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Unique. It's not a description. 
We're not, we're not just counting. We're making a statement about who he is, his very nature and character. If you ever hear someone say, well, the Jews and Christians worship the same God, please remind them we don't. We don't. Now, there's similarities. But the Trinity is more than just something that we, 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 we use to confuse people. God is unique. There is no other triune God. This statement of faith, the creator, the one who made us and made everything, this is the one who is our God. There is nothing that is outside of his realm. Everything that we have and everything that we ever have came from him. Now, he may or may not be your God. You may not be able to claim that, but he is still one, whether we believe it or not, or hear it or not. The Shema will start out, the Lord is our God. He is one. He is unique. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. First, we need to once again agree with the meaning of the word love. What does it mean to love, or what does the Bible mean? You know, as you know, in our 21st century, love has such a, 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 a horrible understanding, horrible definition. We use the same word. I, I love pizza, and I love my wife. What do we mean by that? Yeah, which one? Oh, you're not going there, Jack. You're in trouble. For those who didn't hear, Jack asked which one I like best. There's some questions you like to hear from. The, that's not one of them. When we use the word love, and when most people use the word love, even when they talk about someone else, what they mean is it gives me a good feeling. It makes me feel good. I love this person. It means it makes me happy. It gives me this warm, comfortable feeling inside. That's what I mean by love. It benefits me. It pleases and appeases me. Is that what the Bible means by love? That, that when we say we love someone or we love something, it means it makes me feel good? Is that what we mean by that? Is that what God said what meant? When it says God loves us, does that mean we give him this warm, fuzzy feeling inside? Of course not. For God to love us, it means he has chosen to set his love on us, and it benefits us, not him. It is for our benefit. We, we've been, we, we get something from that. When God said, I love you, he, he says love on us for us, for our good. Isn't it, isn't it incredible that we live in a world that's taken one of the most beautiful expressions of what it means to live for others, to love, 
and found a way to make it absolutely selfish. Absolutely about me. And when you think about it, when the way the world means the word love, to walk up to someone and say, I love you, that means you have the privilege of making me feel good. Now, is that really what the Bible means? You know, it's really, it, it's here. It's in Deuteronomy 7, or 6 and 7, the first time we find in the Bible where it says, God, first time we find where the Bible says, God loves anyone. It means God has chosen to set his love on us, and it benefits us, not him. So we are to love. So we are to live for the glory of God. So it says, for you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It means you are to, you are to, to, to live, to, to set your love upon him for, for his glory. To live in such a way that God is glorified. That's what it means to love him. It doesn't mean to, to, I'm to love God. I've had this good feeling in my heart. No, it is, I, I want to live for his good. And that's the same in a marriage ceremony. When you vow to love your wife, it means you have you made a vow to live, to, 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 to do whatever it takes for her good, for her, for her benefit. And wives, the same way. When you vow to love your wife or love your husband, you vow to live to his benefit. This, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now this is this is so so poorly understood. This is not our emotions, it's not a it's not a feeling. The heart means our awareness, our, our understanding in Hebrew thought. We're to love God with all of our awareness, with our whole awareness or understanding. I think one of the best words, places to see this is in Genesis 26. I'm sorry, Genesis 31, 26. So at this, in the story, we know the story where Jacob had, had, had decided to return home and and he waited till Laban was off taking care of the sheep, and he packed up his family, Rachel and, and Leah, and all the kids, and then he, he they ran away real quick, and, and Laban came running after him. And, and in that in Genesis 31:26, Laban's caught up with Jacob and said to him, "What have you done that you have tricked me? That you have without heart, heartlessly?" The idea is, without my awareness, without my knowledge, you have taken them away. You took away my family without my awareness, without my heart, and driven away my daughters like cats of the sword. Or in Deuteronomy 18:21, And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know? That, how are we aware that God has not spoken? Or the same root words used in Deuteronomy 29, 2-4. And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, 
you have seen that the Lord, seen all that the Lord did before you in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those and those great wonders. But say this, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. This heart, you are to love the Lord your God with all your understanding and all your awareness. We, we, this, this is, we're to set our love upon him with all of our thoughts. All of our awareness, all of our understanding, all of this is set upon and for the glory of God. How are you dealing with that, by the way? How, 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 does, that, how does that look like in your life? Got that one Matt, checked off? Man, I, everything I think, everything I, I understand, everything I have, man, I'm just using that to the glory of God. Got that one covered? We're good on that one? Ready to go on? Man, what a call. What a call. Not just with all your heart, but with all your soul, too. This is your life. This is your this should include your emotions, your beings, everything you have. You're not only to love your God with all your understanding and all your awareness, you're to love him with all of your body, all your life, your whole life and emotions are set upon and done for the glory of God. You don't use any of it for your own glory and your own pleasure and to satisfy yourself. You did it all for God's glory. Genesis 1.20 And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living soul, same word soul, living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And same in 21 and 24, this creation. Every time the word living, that's soul. Same word for soul. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust and the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, soul. And he became a creature with a soul, living creature. Jacob, when he faced God at Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life, soul, is preserved. Or I think Deuteronomy 12, 23. Only be sure that you not eat the blood, for the blood is the soul, life. And you shall not eat the soul, life, with the flesh. So, so we are to love, we are to set our love upon God and, and to live for God's glory with all of our awareness and all of our understanding and with all of our very life to His glory. No problem. Right? Man, we just, we, we just knock this right out. But Moses isn't done. We are to love the Lord our God with our, all of our might. All of our abundance, all of our resources, or as Corey said yesterday, all of our muchness. I like that. Muchness. Generally, you see that translated as exceedingly. 
or sometimes exceedingly greatly. So that everything that God has given us, everything we're, we are to love God with it. We are to use everything that God has given us for His glory. Now imagine for just a second saying this commandment every day or even twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the word of God is absolutely unique. He's absolutely, he's one. He's our God. And you shall set your love upon the Lord your God and live to his good and glory with all your awareness and understanding and with all your life and with everything that he's given you. And you say that to yourself every single day. And if you do this, things will go well with you. Good news, right? The more you read and understand this passage, the more impossible it is. And this is how it should be. We should be absolutely overwhelmed by this. Could you imagine? Could you imagine saying this your whole life? Twice a day, once a day, with absolutely no hope, with no Savior, with no Christ. We cannot live this out. We know that. We need someone, we needed someone to live it for us. And really, the, the, the great part about it is, God's already said, I'm, I'm going to bring somebody. So Josiah tried to live it out. He sought to live it out. He really did. In 2 Kings 23. Josiah started keeping the Passover for the first time in, 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 in many, many years. He kept the Passover. He was keeping the commandments. He was doing all this. Here was Josiah, the king of Judah, and he was trying to live it out. He was trying to do this. Listen, listen to what, what they write of him in 2 Kings 23, verse 24. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household God, and the altars, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book, that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, and with all of his soul, and with all of his might, sound familiar, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like her. Him arise after him. So see, I mean, he's living after God, and he's he's doing this, and and he's he's trying to do this right with all of his mind. But verse twenty six. Still, the Lord did not turn away from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations which Manasseh with which Manasseh had provoked him. All of his efforts, 
and all of his work and all that he's doing, it wasn't enough to turn away God's wrath. He was a type. He was a picture. But he wasn't the fulfillment. He pointed to the king that would do it, but all of his efforts and, and, and all, of his, all, his, all he was doing was not enough to turn away God's wrath. We need someone better than Josiah, better than Tot. We need the fulfillment. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the verse. He perfectly lived this out. Christ was both living to the glory of God and attributing everything to the glory of God. It wasn't that he was not, it wasn't that he was only not just sinning. He wasn't like, I'm just not going to do something wrong. He was living this verse out. He was loving the Lord his God with all his, all his awareness and thought and understanding. And we can't. He was loving God with his very life. He showed it on a cross. And we don't. He was loving God with all of his resources to the glory of God. And we won't. So Christ was doing more than keeping all the rules. He lived out the image of God. He was the perfect display of the image of God. We are not to make graven images. Why? Because God brought his own image. That is his son, Jesus Christ. That's the image. Hebrews 10, 1-25. As, as Hebrews brings all this together. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they will not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, in these pictures, there was a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the, bull, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings are not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Christ said, Then behold, then I said, Christ said, Behold, I have I will have come to do your will, God, as is written in the scroll of the books. When he, when he said above, you have neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and born offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's our hope. That's our sanctification. That's our righteousness. Just that. Seeing him. It's him. 
taste of fulfillment. Let us go on in Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a foot soil for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. What a joy it is. What incredible joy it is this, this, this resurrection day. To know this has been accomplished. This has been accomplished. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not he will perfect. It ha he has perfected. It has been accomplished. When we say Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, we mean more than just the historical event. We mean in that, in that he has perfectly fulfilled the commandments that we couldn't. And in that, and in him, we have that promise. And in him alone. This is, this is our hope. This is our, 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 our pronouncement. This is our faith. He said the very next, I will put their laws in my heart, and, and we'll go into that more next month. But I would like to go ahead and finish reading Hebrews 10 because it, it's, it's all this. Hebrews 10 and, and, and Deuteronomy uh, 6 line up so well. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. You know, and as we said, this ideal of the Trinity, this, our God is one, they're all. All three are in this passage. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are here. This, this Trinity, it's not just, we say the Lord is one, He's unique. It's not just a good ideal. It, it, is, it is absolutely necessary for our hope and salvation. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there can no longer, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. It has been completed. Christ has completed it all. He's written on our hearts. There's no more offerings. And we rejoice in that.